Chapter 13, Part 2 of Nequa, or The Problem of the Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Molehill Mountain. Nequa, or The Problem of the Ages, by Jack Adams. Chapter 13, Part 2, Bonadia. You see, said Aqua, who had been unusually silent and preoccupied, that this symbol of the two bridges tells the story of the difference between the profit system of exchange and the equitable, between the old system with its widespread poverty, and the new with its abundance. I see the difference, I said, but it is not so clear to my mind just how the people can pass from one bridge to the other, from profit to equity. That is very easy, said Aqua, change the purpose for which business is transacted. Instead of exacting profit from the producer and the consumer, conduct business for the purpose of establishing equitable relations between the producers and the consumers. When this is done, the profit system will have been removed and equity will bring abundance to the household of every producer and poverty will be abolished. I can well understand, I said, what the effect of a change of systems would be, and it is equally clear to my mind that the money-kings, trust-barons, and landlords could, if they would, easily introduce the change. But how could the poverty-stricken people make such a change in the business system of the world? If it is done at all, it must be done by the very poor, and under the profit system the very poor are helpless. That, under the profit system, is well put in, said Norena, laughing. It is undoubtedly true that, under the profit system, the producers are helpless, and it is equally true that, as long as they remain under this system, they will continue to be helpless. It is also true that the selfishness of the wealthy managers will never consent to the change so long as they can prevent it. Then, indeed, I said, to my mind, the condition of the laboring millions is hopeless. They cannot establish equity, and the rich will not. Why hopeless? asked Nirvana. Do you think they would refuse to make the changes from profit to equity if they had the opportunity to do so? Not that, I said. But the question is, how can they make the change while bound hand and foot under the profit system? Whatever has been done, said Nirvana, can be done, and you have only to look around you to see that the change from profit to equity has been made in this country and can be made in yours, notwithstanding the fact that the people are bound hand and foot and will continue to be so bound as long as the profit system continues. Please do not mock me, I said with some spirit. How can a people who are bound hand and foot save themselves? By using their heads, said Nirvana. The hands and feet may be bound while the head is left free to think. Let this freedom to think be exercised in the right direction and their physical bonds will disappear. I am sure they do think, I responded. And what is more, they have been thinking for a long time. Then, said Norena, let them continue to think, and they cannot fail in due time to find out just what is the matter. Oh, many of them have found that out, I said, and realize that they are impoverished by the exorbitant profits on investments which go to the wealthy classes. Then indeed, said Norena, the day of their deliverance is drawing near. They have already learned that it is the profit system that is pauperizing them. If they continue to think, they cannot fail to learn that the profit system could not continue without their constant support. That when they withdraw their patronage from profit mongers, the profit system will disappear. If I read your literature correctly, your people are very near the hour of their deliverance. They may, I said, be driven to the violent overthrow of the present system, 
but I do not see how they can speedily break their bonds in any other manner. They can do it, said Nirvana, by the exercise of the same spirit of manly independence, intelligently directed, that they now exercised in their worse than useless strikes. You have the competitive system which is self-destructious and hence weak. Your producing classes can organize as consumers and take advantage of the sharp competition between dealers to sell goods, and by a wise use of their combined power to purchase, introduce an equitable system of change. What is that? I asked. Would they expect any such sweeping results from selling their trade to the firm that would give them the largest rebate on prices? Would not the tendency of such a movement be to still further curtail the demand for labor by depressing the price of products? Yes, said Nirena. Such a system for selling their custom for a rebate would have just such an effect. But you can lose sight of the fact that wholesale dealers are competing with each other for an opportunity to sell goods. They sell to retail dealers who can find customers for their goods. Organize your ability to purchase, select a competent business agent, and go into business for yourselves, and be sure not to undersell other dealers. Your exchange will have a decided advantage over every other dealer, because your trade will be organized and your sales will be certain. The wholesaler will be quick to see this and will be anxious to get your trade, as his pay will be certain. But, I said, where would be the inducement for the people to organize their trade with the certainty that they would pay just as much for the goods as they did before? The same inducement, said Nirena, that people under the money system have for depositing their earnings in savings banks. Every time they purchase an article in their own exchange, they are making a deposit to their own credit, where it will do them the most good in times of disaster. The profits will belong to the organized customers, and by leaving them in the exchange, they will accumulate a sample stock of goods already paid for, from which any order can be filled. After such a stock of goods is secured, they might at regular intervals declare a dividend to the organized customers, leaving a percentage on deposit with the exchange to be used to educate the people into a comprehensive understanding of business methods and for the creation of a fund to purchase land and give employment to their members, in order to eliminate rent on land and save the profits on production. But, I said, I do not clearly see how starting stores and saving retail profits would enable the people to escape the demands of interest and rent. The store by itself, said Nirvana, could not do this, but the financial power that can always be secured by wise business methods could. To the extent that the use of money can be minimized and debts paid, of course interest will be saved. And to the extent that consumption can be organized and concentrated, a smaller number of business houses will also be needed and thus rent saved to the customers, who in the last analysis paid all the expenses. And just in proportion as business houses are not needed, they will be for sale to people who can use them, as landlords could not afford to pay taxes on property for which tenants could not be found. This property would all be needed by the organized consumers who, with their continually accumulating funds from pulling the savings of profit, interest, and rent, even on a comparatively small scale, would always be able to buy. The profits on distribution will constitute an ample fund for socializing the land and furnishing employment for a continually increasing number of people. But, I said, to be able to hold our own against the worldwide profit system would require a worldwide organization. Do not be too sure of that, said Nirvana. The benefits of equitable exchange in a single locality would be most decided. 
Of course, it would be more effective if extended over a wider field. But the distribution of literature, such as the accumulating profits would enable you to make, added to the far-reaching effects of a successful object lesson, could not fail to make the organization worldwide. All that is necessary for this purpose is a practical demonstration, that by this system the productive laborer and not the money king is master of the situation. Is this the same plan that you outlined in your address? I asked. Just the same, he said. All that is required is such a business organization as will cover the entire ground demanded by absolute justice. It must look to the elimination, as rapidly as possible, of the elements of interest, profit, and rent. To avoid the payment of interest, it is necessary to minimize the use of money, and as soon as debts are paid, refuse to use it at all. To avoid profits, you must purchase your supplies and sell your products through your own exchanges. To get rid of rent, use the profits to socialize the land. This is certainly sweeping enough, I said, but it seems to me that it would be an almost endless task to induce the masses of the people to unite their trade to such an extent as would be necessary to secure the full measure of relief demanded by absolute justice. It certainly would be, said Norena, if you did not prosecute a vigorous educational work, and at the same time offer inducements that the profit system cannot afford. I fear that this would be impossible, I said. The dealers with millions of money could beat us in offering inducements to catch the trade of the unthinking. Do not fear that, said Norena. They could not do that without abandoning the profit system. Which is all that you would ask. As soon as you have organized trade and have sufficient stock accumulated to meet its demands, you will be saving interest to the extent that you can transact business without money, and to this will be added all of the net retail profits. This will enable you to pay a little more for farm products than dealers can who are on the profit basis. You can safely continue this rise in prices until you pay as much as you can sell for. This will give you the entire trade of the farmers, and the usual profits on all they purchase will be a net gain to your exchange, less the slight advance on the price of products equal to the profits of the speculators. The price you receive for farm products will be exchanged for goods on which you will make a profit. And if you can always make one profit on the exchange, you will be on the high road to success. But this inducement, I said, would only reach the farmers. It would be necessary to offer some other kind of inducement to secure the trade of the city workmen. That is easily provided for, said Norena. Your farmer's trade, notwithstanding the fact that you pay as much for the product as you can sell it for, will net one profit on the goods for which you exchange it. With all this farm trade secure, you can begin to furnish employment to city workmen in various ways, converting the raw material into finished products to supply your increasing trade. This will enable you to make valuable customers out of all the workmen for whom you can find employment. Another inducement will be to return one half of the net profits on their trade in the shape of a check which will be good at the exchange for products. This will leave one half as a contribution to the educational and land purchase fund, I believe, however, that with a vigorous and comprehensive educational work, but few would ever draw anything in the shape of a dividend out of the business, but leave it as a permanent investment to enable them to secure homes, or as an insurance fund to support them in sickness and for the benefit of their families in case of death. You seem to have unlimited faith in this plan of organizing business, I said. And why should I not have, said Norena. These principles have been tried in this country, and we know by experience that they cannot fail. Wherever they are intelligently and honestly applied, 
on a scale large enough to constitute one good object lesson as to what can be accomplished. The system, in practice, will demonstrate that money is not a necessity. Money, however, will still come into your hands, even more freely, and as long as you have debts that must be paid in money, you will have use for it. But when the debts are all paid, money might cease to circulate, as you would then have learned by actual experience that you would get along better without it than with it. That puts me in mind, I said, that in your lecture you stated that the people of this country, in their movement to establish equity in business, established banks to manage their money account. If the movement here was started by the very poor, how did they get money for the necessary cash capital? By the accumulation from cash purchases made in their exchanges, said Nirvana. Their exchanges were a system of banking products, but they issued checks on the deposit of money as well as products. As these exchanges offered superior inducements, they received their full share of cash trade from the beginning, and nearly all of it when their exchange was complete. Hence they found no difficulty in establishing their own banks under the law, and as they never loaned their deposits, their banks could not break, and people who had money to deposit brought it to them for safekeeping. As the tendency of this locking up of deposits was to curtail the circulation of money, the exchanges provided against any oppressive stringency by loaning on good security, without interest, checks which were redeemable in products at the exchanges. It was estimated by the statisticians of that time that every dollar locked up in the exchange banks brought six dollars of trade per annum to the exchange stores on which the regular customs at these exchanges made an average of ten percent, or sixty percent, upon deposits. Were these exchanges incorporated as joint stock companies, I asked? They were, said Nirena, but not always. The real object of the order was to ultimately eliminate the stock corporation and substitute the equal co-partnership. Hence, when incorporated, every regular customer was a stockholder to the same amount, and the stock might be paid for by turning their dividends back into the business as a permanent investment. In other words, they might pay for their stock out of what they were able to save in their cost of living by their abandonment of the profit system. And further, in order to protect themselves from the danger of a constructive indebtedness in the shape of dividend-exacting stock, no certificates were issued, and the stock paid for was always redeemable in exchange certificates payable in goods at the option of the shareholders, or by order of the directors of the corporation, for failure to patronize the exchange whenever practicable. As governments were especially friendly to corporations, it was deemed best by many to incorporate and secure these advantages. This, I said, was certainly the full measure of justice to be secured by a stock corporation. But how were others which were not incorporated organized in order to secure the full measure of justice to members? There was, said Nirena, no patent on the application of the golden rule in business. And among businessmen, there was a large number who really wanted to see equity established in human affairs. Hence, there was nothing to hinder a merchant from entering into contracts with organized consumers to sell his business to them and retain the management at an agreed salary under such rules and regulations for the conduct of the business as they might adopt. By this means, many were enabled to exchange a precarious profit for a permanent income. In cases of this kind, the merchant was benefited by securing a guarantee against bankruptcy and the organized consumers by securing the services of the necessary business talent to establish equity and distribution by paying equal dividends out of the net income to all regular customers. 
As contracts for a lawful purpose were held sacred by the courts, a very large number held that the contract between the consumers and the manager secured greater advantages than the stock corporation in obtaining equality of dividends. But, I asked, why this equality of dividends? Was it fair to those who purchased large quantities of goods to require them to share equally with those who purchased on a small scale? It certainly was, said Narena, as it took the united purchasing power of all to establish a business that enabled them to effect any saving at all, so that there would be something to divide. The large purchaser through these exchanges got something back, while under the profit system he would have made nothing at all. To him, this equal dividend was a comparatively small item, while it was a most important increase of purchasing power to one who was barely able to procure the necessaries of life. Persons in affluent circumstances were thus enabled to help their poor neighbors, and at the same time secure a dividend themselves. This system of organized consumption with an equal distribution of the net profits was the first introduction of the fraternal features of our altruistic civilization. It was, in its application, a system of universal insurance against poverty for all, who, as consumers, withdrew their support from the profit system. In a peaceful, just, and orderly manner, it enabled the poorest to take a seat at the table which our bounteous Mother Nature has prepared alike for all, and from which they had been excluded by human greed which the founders of the old religious system had characterized as the mammon of unrighteousness. Then it seems, I said, that this was something of a religious as well as a business organization. Yes, said Narena, it may indeed be regarded in that light as it was the practical application of the teachings of Christus. This equality of interest in the distribution of that which had hitherto been lost to the producers of wealth under the profit system was the first recognition, on a broad scale, of the brotherhood of man in the business relations which existed among the people. This great business organization appealed to the enlightened self-interest of all classes of people and drew them into closer relations with each other as one family, and cultivated feelings of fraternal regard for each other that will be imperishable. With an abundance for all, the inordinate thirst for gain had been eliminated and the application of the golden rule in business had at last been established to bless mankind. I am deeply interested in learning more about this organization, I said. From your explanations, I think I have a tolerably clear idea of its general principles, and now I would be pleased to know more about its origin, history, and experiences. As an organization, it must have passed through many trying ordeals before it accomplished its work on freeing the people from their thraldom to triumphant greed. It did have a history, said Narena, but it was a history of signal and sweeping victories. Its difficulty and trying ordeals were all in its efforts to get started right, even the leaders of the great reform movements of that time, many of whom had given years to the study and discussion of economic questions, did not comprehend its scope. The people had been so thoroughly blinded by the universal system of doing business on money basis that they had never even tried to formulate plans for changing to the labor basis unless they could get money enough to purchase everything necessary to start up the work of production and distribution. This class of cooperators frequently put their means together, purchased lands, and established colonies. Many of these proved quite successful, but they did not bring the benefits of cooperation to the millions who could not pay the necessary initiation fee, to say nothing of the other millions who were forced into idleness. This reminds me, I said, that Eola told me the district where I had been making my home was a community or colony of this kind, but she said that the colonists were among the very poor. 
That is true, said Nirena. District number one was originally composed of that class of people in the great city Croy, which the money kings regarded as dangerous, and hence they were permitted to go upon lands for which there was no market. The leaders were people of high culture and knew how to use their opportunities, but the colonies of which I speak were not founded by this emerged. These colonies demonstrated that cooperation contained elements of vital power that was irresistible whenever it was fairly tested. The able literature sent out from these colonies, backed up by their experience, was a powerful educational influence which prepared the way for universal cooperation. But this organization of equitable change, as I understand it, I said, was a business organization adapted to the general public, which enabled the people to get possession of the machinery of production and distribution. We have successful colonies in the outer world, and I am familiar with their methods, but how long to bring these benefits of united action to the whole people is the question in which I am especially interested. I have described its working, said Narena, as clearly as my knowledge of your language will permit, and if there is any matter concerning which you are in doubt, I will try to make it plain. I have no doubt of the principles, I said, and from what I have seen I am persuaded that the methods could be successfully applied wherever a nucleus of earnest reformers could be found who make a careful study of the situation and adopt the same business methods which were used so successfully in this country. I want some of the particulars concerning the history of this organization and a concise statement of its purposes and business methods that would serve as a model for a similar organization in the United States. The first organization, said Nirvana, was effected at this place, which was then the site of one of the larger interior cities of that day. This was the center of business for a large population of farmers on one side and miners on the other. It started with the guaranteed trade of 100 families and was a success from the start, as the result of the ample provision for educational work along the lines indicated. Every member was supplied with a paper which was devoted to the education of the people into a comprehensive understanding of business methods and commercial equation, as promulgated in theory and illustrated in practice by the patrons of equity. This paper contained the official reports of the business exchanges established under the auspices of the order. The educational work had been carried on for a long time by a few devoted workers before it materialized into a self-supporting business. After that, the order spread rapidly. A percentage of the profits was used to employ organizers and every organization added to the trade, and increased profits without any corresponding increase of expenses. When this movement was inaugurated, the number of commercial travelers in the country was estimated at about 250,000. These were persons of energy and business talent. They were quick to see the advantages which this system of commercial equity offered to men of ability to establish themselves in business for which they were especially qualified, and they started out to find locations where they could organize business on these principles. But was there not some danger that designing people might get control and defeat the purposes of the organization? I asked. Designing persons did get into positions, said Narena, but there could be no danger to the cause from this source, as, in order to secure positions, they had to adopt methods of business that could not fail to overthrow the profit system. And as fast as business was organized, the official paper of the order was sent regularly to every member. If at first they did not understand the principles well enough to protect themselves from knaves, they soon learned, and if anything was going wrong, it was soon understood by the customers. As the business extended, the oppressive power of money decreased and the power of labor increased. 
the enthusiasm of the people was aroused to the highest pitch, and the magnates of the old system were correspondingly depressed. The old system was essentially weak, while the new was peculiarly strong. And as the hosts of wealth producers came together and utilized the actual values created by their labor as the medium by which exchanges were affected, prices went up as the result of the increase in the currency, and there was no use for money except to pay debts. Under this system, the purchasing power of labor and products was steadily increasing, while the purchasing power of money was decreasing. As long as money was needed to pay debts, products were exchanged for money under the increased price fixed under the labor standard. But when the debts were all paid, the purchasing power of money was gone, and poverty had disappeared with it. Every debt had been paid according to contract, and in the payment of these debts, the debtors had transferred their poverty to their creditors. We have gone over this ground, I said, until, as I understand it, the great potency of this organization was in the fact that all its methods were especially designed to ultimately eliminate the use of money in the transaction of business. But it occurs to me that much could be done in this direction without the organization of business exchanges, which issue certificates on the deposit of money and products to serve the purposes of a currency. You are right, said Narena. And much was done along other lines when the people came to understand that the prime factor in the overthrow of the profit system was to avoid the use of money in the transaction of business, in every manner possible. In some localities far east, the use of what was known as new occasion notes was introduced to facilitate exchange without money. The shoemaker, for instance, would give his note, payable in shoes, for groceries. The physician would give his note for groceries, payable in professional services. The grocery man had no personal use for either shoes or the services of a physician, but he needed coal, and the coal dealer needed both a shoemaker and a physician, and exchanged coal for the notes. The exchange enabled the shoemaker and the physician to get groceries, the grocery man could get coal, and the coal dealer to get shoes and the services of a physician, and all without the use of a cent of money. The use of these notes became so common that to still further facilitate exchanges, clearing houses were established where persons who held notes payable in something they did not need could exchange them for notes that were payable in something they did need. This system of exchanging new occasion notes grew into a general collecting agency, and it was found that among the large number of collections placed in its hands, a great percentage cancelled each other and balances could ordinarily be put in the shape of new occasion notes redeemable in some kind of products or services. As a means of enabling people to get out of debt, and at the same time facilitating exchange and decreasing the demand for money, these agencies proved to be most effective. The patrons of equity contemplated the persistent use of every method that could be devised to minimize the demand for money with a view to its ultimate elimination as a medium of exchange, by the establishment of equity between producers and consumers. They had learned that money of any kind could be inflated and contracted for selfish purposes, and therefore it was a false measure and could not be depended on to mete out even-handed justice to the people who used it as a medium of exchange. I can plainly see, I said, that the field of labor for such an organization in the outer world is practically unlimited, and I want you to furnish me with the details of its plan of organization, as a model for a similar one for use in my book. I have, said Narena, provided a translation of the constitution and bylaws of the order, together with the rules and regulations for the government of its exchange department for your own use. I would advise you, however, not to publish these in your book. Only present the general principles, and let your people work out the details in their own way. 
Start the idea to working, and I doubt not that they will discover how easy it is for them to escape from their thraldom to greed, and when they do, it will not be long until they sever the bonds that hold them. And how, I asked, would you state these purposes so as to include all you have given me in the fewest possible number of words? For this purpose, said he, I cannot do better than to quote the Declaration of Purposes from the preliminary constitution formulated by the founders of the Patrons of Equity as follows. Section 1. The primary object of this order shall be to organize exchange on the largest scale that may be practicable, with a view of the establishment of equitable relations between producers and consumers, by eliminating, as rapidly as possible, every element of cost that does not go to the producers of the wealth exchanged, less inequitable compensation to the labor, physical and mental, that is necessary to an economical management of the business. Section 2. And further, as opportunity offers, to effect such an organization of our financial relations as will enable us, as far as practicable, to hold all the money that comes into our hands, as a sacred trust, to be used only in the payment of taxes, and of debts in all cases where the creditor cannot be included to take some other form of payment. Section 3. To accomplish these objects, the first and leading work of the patrons of equity shall be to educate the people into a more comprehensive understanding of business methods that will enable them to minimize the use of money in their business relations with each other by an organized effort to make the largest possible number of exchanges with the smallest possible amount of money. Section 4. The general policy of this order, in the conduct of all the business enterprises established under its auspices, shall be to utilize the net profits on distribution to procure lands and establish production in order to provide the largest possible amount of employment to members in good standing. This declaration, continued Norena, when fully understood, is seen to contain every element of a speedy uplifting of any people who are oppressed by the power of wealth. Any person with a fair understanding of business methods can work out the details for the application of these principles in actual business, and any 50 families who are able to purchase and pay for supplies to the extent of $5 per week would provide an aggregate sale of over $2,000 worth of goods per month, which would be ample to start business, pay unnecessary expenses, and have something left. Such a business, properly managed, could, by comprehensive educational movement, be made to absorb the trade of any community for the benefit of the customers, and thus create an object lesson that would be speedily adopted by other communities and become general. The people would be masters of the situation, and the power of money to dictate terms would have passed away forever. I should think, I said, that everything pertaining to the organization which won such a victory for humanity would be carefully preserved in this museum of universal history. It is, said Norena, but it will be found in the story above, and we will hardly have time to extend this visit any further today. Nor tomorrow, either, interposed Aqua. We have important work at Biblis tomorrow, or at least there may be. Houston and Dione want to register as man and wife, and for some reason Houston thinks that Captain Gano will have objections, and if so, they must be taken into account. Besides, we propose to have an excursion around the lake on the Ice King. So we had better return to our rooms, take a rest, and be prepared to start early tomorrow morning. And I propose, said Norena, that we extend our excursion to Croy and complete the object lesson that records the victory of equity over greed. End of chapter 13, part 2